Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder how you think God will save you. If you're not a Christian, how do you expect God to save you or speak to you or reveal, your, reveal himself to you? And if you're here and you are a Christian, do you think God just randomly reveals himself to you? Do you think there's no order to how he presents himself or how he orchestrates or manifests his likeness to you or teaches you or guides you? And do you ever wonder how his desire can be played out as he continues to build you up or to bless you? If you're here and you are a Christian, how do you expect God to continually bless you? Now, typically, whether it's fear or doubt or always feeling like you're behind. Every Christian struggles from time to time with the question, have I done enough to grow? Or, or how can I grow more? Or a lot of people in, in the darkest times, can I really be truly blessed by God? Or what will it take to be blessed by God? Now, if you go to a Christian bookstore today, uh, you'll find all kinds of books that will encourage you to grow as a believer. And and most of these books are truly awful. I mean, if you just pursue the, the titles or what they're teaching, it's just a giant muck and distraction of how God actually does want you to grow. They, they promote that you will grow in grace through finding your purpose and voice. Or they'll encourage you to, that you will truly grow and truly be blessed by God if you organize your financial assets. Or you'll grow in grace if you Finally understand your own personality type. What really makes you you? And, and then God will stop and say, now it's my turn now that you know yourself on a paradigm that we've created. Or if you become a leader in whatever arena you're in, now God will see you as worthy and bless you because you just made a meeting end early. There it is. I knew people would laugh because they're like, if anything COVID taught us, it's that all of those meetings could be emailed, didn't they? There, there are so many programs and processes for a Christian to grow, we're told. There are so many ways that we can grow, so many programs that we can place ourselves in that, that pretty soon we'll actually need lessons on how to not be overwhelmed in the way that we can grow. Or we'll need lessons on how to not hyperventilate in all the ways that we could pursue God. But regardless of where you are in life, how should you pursue God more deeply, cherish Him more vivaciously, or better yet, how can you enjoy His grace every day? That's a question that we all ask ourselves. And has God given us specific means for that to be accomplished? Does God want you to grow and be blessed? Yes. Has He provided a way for you, you in particular, us as a church, has he provided a way for us to do that? Or are we just left to the random circumstances of whatever culture we're in that do we know or can we grow in our understanding of his grace every day? How can you hold to the truth of God's redemption? For, for the non-Christian, how can you know Christ's redemption? And for the Christian, how can you hold on to that? Has God determined those things? Our passage this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. And in this particular passage, Paul speaks of him sending Timothy, his cherished 
disciple and his equipped elder pastor to minister to younger or more immature Christians. He was sent, Timothy was sent to build them up. That was the purpose of him going there. He was sent because they were struggling in their faith. And so Paul heard about that and said, I'm going to send you Timothy and he will encourage you in your faith. It says he went, look at verse 2 of the passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. It says that he went to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Now, my version says, I'm reading from the ESV, my version says to establish. Yours might say to strengthen, if you're using the NIV or the NASB. Any of those translations are great, but he is sent to establish or to strengthen our faith. The Greek word there is sterizo, meaning to give support or to prop up. You know, like you can imagine these beams propping up this building. Or for those of you who are about to play football this this fall or coach football, you have probably been spending your summer months not just building muscles so that you will look cool in a mirror, though that's fine if you do, none of us notice or care, but if you're trying to grow in strength because someone is about to come at you as fast as they possibly can and you want to hold them up or push them over or move them aside so you don't get flattened. And what these people felt in 1 Thessalonians is they were continually feeling flattened. And so he sent Timothy, his servant, in the gospel in order to establish and exhort them in their faith. Literally to prop them up. Because evil will come and hardship will come and circumstances are hard. If anything, all of our testimonies could have two things in common. One, we live in hard circumstances, and by God's grace, if you're in Christ, we are propped up to withstand those in faith. And so that's why Timothy was going to the church of Thessalonica. But how do you believe or think that he did that? What program did he bring? What book might he teach from? What way would he organize different programs or processes or classes would he do in order to build them up? How do you believe that Timothy would actually teach you to be built up in your own faith? And that's the path of my sermon this morning. This month, I hope to take us through last week and then two more weeks, Lord willing, what I'm calling Church Matters, just kind of basic things about the church as a whole. Last week, I talked about the joy that we have in being a member of a church And this week I'm going to be talking about the ordinary means of us to enjoy Christ's redemption. And next week I'll talk about how the church is organized for that passion. And then the final week uh, will be on the the role and the goal of church discipline, defending Christ's truth as it's being held up by the church. God has given us the means by which we can enjoy his redemption. Now, I've just seen again and again in my own life, and I've seen again and again in your lives, that there is a temptation. We have a temptation. Think about this. You and I have a natural temptation to not feel okay with God ordering his presentation of his redemption to us. You could think of it of like a mountain, that there is a way that we can go up the mountain. And God has told us a way that we can go up the mountain. And you and I naturally have a temptation to go, I I see that route that you're doing there, but have you heard of this other route? It looks a little bit harder, or it looks a little bit easier. 
Or we might think it goes more straight up the top of the mountain. And God's saying, I've given you this route to enjoy my redemption. Non-Christians, I've given you this route in order to see who Christ is, to be saved from your sins. And all of us have the temptation to go, yes, yes, but what about this way? Have you ever thought of this shortcut, O sovereign God of the entire mountain? And what Timothy is bringing to this church is there are ordinary means by which you and I can hold on to or understand God's grace. There are ordinary ways, plain ways, regular ways for you and I to enjoy God more. All of us struggle with, can I be blessed by God? Yes. And God has given us the means to do so. Now to be clear, God could have chosen to reveal Christ through a variety of means. And this is really where the separation of some denominations reside insides of Christianity rest. But it is clear in Scripture that God has determined the means by which he has revealed Christ to us and determines the means by which we can revel in that same redemption. And he does this through three means we see throughout Scripture. He does this. God reveals his Son to us through these three means. And it's his word, his sacrament, or his ordinances as we call them, and prayer. God reveals his redemption through the word, the ordinances, and prayer. And God allows you and I to enjoy that same redemption that we have confessed with our mouths and believed with our hearts. We can enjoy that through the word, ordinances, and prayer. And that's the pathway for my sermon. These are the ordinary means of grace. I asked a lot of people of this last week, what are the ordinary means of grace? And they had not read Wikipedia like I had read Wikipedia. So I knew the answer that they didn't know. Ordinary means of grace. They are ordinary and should be regular. They should be the regular routine or the rhythm in our lives to sit under the word, partake in the word, enjoy the word, or pray individually or together and to see the ordinances of the, of the church. They are ordinary in that I mean they are not far-fetched or unreachable. You and I have a temptation to think that we need something else supernatural in our lives to keep us like the flame going in our own faith. We were miraculously saved, and now we are given ordinary means of how we can enjoy Christ forever. You don't have to go to a cool church or a bland church. You don't have to go to a contemporary church or a traditional church. They're God's specific and global call to the world about his son. They're God's word, his ordinances that he's given us, and prayer. So let me go through these three, basing this off of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. How has God chosen to bless his people? And it's through, first, by his grace established through our hearing. His grace established through our hearing. If you're using an outline, the back of the bulletin, I'm now at point one. And I mean that his grace established through hearing. What I mean specifically is the reading and the preaching of God's word at the church that you go to. God has chosen to bless you, both in revealing his son to you and building you up in his faith by the reading and preaching of God's word at your church. If you're a guest with us today, this is why we place the primacy of our worship on basking in and reading of God's word. This is why the pulpit is at the middle of this room. This is, this is why something transformational happened 500 years ago where they actually took the word where it was placed way back here 
in a worship service and actually brought it before the people so that we can all sit under it or revel in it. Now, just to give you a quick scan of the scriptures, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, just to put your eyes on the page. 1 Timothy chapter 4, turn over just one or two books. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where we see that God has chosen to reach and build up his people through the word. Now, Paul, to pastor, protege, Timothy writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, or to, and to teaching. Turn over one book to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, could Paul possibly give more emphasis on what he's about to say? I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Why such an emphasis? What we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, just one chapter back, verses 14 through 17, here afresh these famous verses. In verse 14 it says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So for those of you who are Christians, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now pay attention. This is why Scripture is inspired and used through preaching, verse 17, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, for every good work. Friends, when you struggle or when you wonder how you can be built up in faith, how you can be blessed by God, how you can grow in holiness, he says in verse 17 that the man of God, hopefully that you, may be complete, equipped for every good work. How? By recognizing and hearing that all Scripture that is breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Perhaps you've got the the first part of verse 16 as an understanding of what does it mean for the word to be inspired. It means it's to be breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. But what about the second part? Do you see what God inspired his word to do? To bless you. To build you up. We see ourselves being called to go up this side of the mountain. And how many times do we neglect God's holy and true and awesome word? And wonder why. We have a constant feeling of, I need to be blessed. Friend, be honest with yourself. Maybe you grew up in a tradition like ours. Good. Where the preaching of God's word was paramount in the service. Children or youth, do not grow up and go to a church where the word is substituted and downplayed. Hopefully, you will grow up and leave here for whatever reason. And when you do go away, go to a church that cherishes the word, not just because it gives someone like me a job, but because most importantly and exclusively, God has given this as a mean for you to grow in faith 
He has not given other things that we are often tempted by to grow in faith. Jesus actually teaches us that the scriptures are the primary and indispensable means of salvation. It's how the Holy Spirit draws you to Christ's own beauty. It's how you humbly bask in God's holiness. It's how you grow in his son's likeness by hearing from the word. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. Luke chapter 16, verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you don't believe the Bible, you're not going to believe me. That's what Jesus is saying. How do we expect any other means of which God would present his son to us? Jesus himself says the word. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, preaching, he preached to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, meaning the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds, it says in verse 45, after they would have known the Old Testament scriptures, he then opened their minds to understand these scriptures and their meaning. Paul would later explain in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. All those words are intentionally connected. Your faith comes from your hearing. Your hearing that gives you faith comes from the very words of Christ. And what you'll also see in the New Testament is that the apostles, those who were called to advance the establishment of the, of the church, saw the word of God, its proclamation, its explanation, its exposition, and its honor with the highest value for coming to Christ and counsel. Not just in redemption, showing up at your front door, but actually continually counseling, counseling your soul in the living room. Salvation and sanctification are from the word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What do we know about who God is? We see it from his word. So, how can you know Christ, friend? Know his word. How can you grow in Christ-likeness? Same way, in his word. The word of God is a mean of grace. M-A-N, a mean of grace. God's appointed instrument by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive and enjoy the benefits of redemption. If you want to grow in your faith, place your face in this book. Second, God has established his redemption coming to us and building us up through our seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, through our seeing. We're also told and taught in God's word that God has appointed the ordinances or sacraments to mean, uh, to be a mean by which the Holy Spirit enables us to receive Christ and enjoy the benefit of redemption. He, he does this. We are able to know him and enjoy him through the mean of the ordinances. And by the ordinances, I mean baptism and the Lord's Supper, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's think about it for a minute how baptism and the Lord's Supper might actually be intended by God to grow us in grace. Now, you might be used to the phrase 
uh, sacraments or the word sacraments. Our, our tradition, our particular tradition, doesn't typically use that language, sacraments, just to avoid any confusion with the Roman Catholic Church. Their understanding of the elements was actually God conferring, their confession says, where through the sacraments, and they have more than what we have, I think they have seven, through those sacraments, God is actually conferring His grace, they say, or He's bestowing His grace on all of you. Imagine me bestowing all of my wealth on you. That would mean I actually give all my money to you if I bestow my wealth to you. Don't count on it. But what ours is different than them. Ours is much like the state of Oklahoma confers you with a driver's license. It now stamps you as one who is approved by the state to safely drive on the roads. Their sacraments in and of themselves, the, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, teaches that infant baptism actually removes the stain of original sin. Or uh, the receiving in the Lord's Supper actually transfers a chunk of grace into your spiritual account, much like how you and I would drink a Gatorade either before, during, or after a long run. We are actually receiving something that will fill us up and make us go forward more fast. That's how they would believe the sacraments actually work in our lives. And I think that's a grave error just from the explanations from Scripture. These ordinances aren't effective in and of themselves, but they are effective in God's hands as means when they are received by faith. Now, lest we throw the baby out with the Roman Catholic bathwater, is God doing anything through these ordinances? Okay, so I'm saying that God is not giving you a chunk of himself through the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying you're absolved from your sin through the baptism. Is God doing anything, or are these just nice, polite signs of his grace? Is God doing anything through these ordinances? Why do we understand us receiving an awareness of his redeeming work and being built up in our faith through uh, observing the sacraments? Is anything specifically added to us in our Christian walk? Christ's saving grace is spiritually communicated to believers when we are baptized and when we partake in the Lord's Supper in faith. Christ's saving grace is spiritually communicated to believers when we are baptized and when we partake in the Lord's Supper in faith. It's a big deal, a graceful practice, and it's a serious one. This is why those who are unworthy, meaning their lack of confession, their lack of repentance, their lack of owning Christ as him being the forgiver of their sins. This is why they would be unworthy to go into a baptismal water or why they would be unworthy to participate in the Lord's Supper. It is a serious example of Christ's grace being shown to us. Now, I could talk about so much of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but for the sake of our time, I just want to look at the ordinances through one particular lens of Christ bringing his redemption to us and allowing us to enjoy his redemption altogether. I want us to look at these as promising us things in particular. The Lord's Supper is a sign because, in part, it promises things to us. Baptism to us is a sign because, in part, it promises things to us. So we see the gospel through it and we cherish by seeing the gospel in it. It takes direct aim at our faith. So let's just think about baptism. Think of all the promises, pictures. Think of all the promises and pictures that we get through the ordinance of baptism. Baptism, just in definition, is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Christ, where it's a sign of the baptized, their fellowship with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. It's a sign of the baptized being grafted into him. It's a sign of the baptized 
having remission of their sins and of giving up themselves unto God through Christ Jesus and then to live and walk in the newness of life. Uh, The definition is taken from a catechism in 1693 by Benjamin Keach, where it's a set of 118 basic questions and answers from Scripture. They're basic readings of the Christian faith, and it was written for four-year-olds. So four-year-olds are taught to know that baptism is a sign of our fellowship with Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. It's a sign of the baptized being grafted into him. It's a sign of the baptized in their remission of sins. It's a sign of the baptized giving themselves up unto God through Christ Jesus to live and walk in the newness of life. Now, it communicates several promises to us. Four in particular. Promise number one, it shows us that we have died to the old self. It's been buried. Our old self has been buried. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? How can we see Christ's redemption through that? By being baptized. Promise number two, it shows us that we have not only died in our sins, but have been raised by him. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 continues on. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Friend, ever had one of those weeks where it felt like you were enslaved to the old self? Like even if you fought, you couldn't win. I would encourage you to either remind yourself of your baptism or watch a baptism and be reminded that that feeling inside of you is a lie. Your old self has been crucified with Christ and it has been raised to walk in the newness of life. Promise number three, it's the baptism allows us to see that we are one with Christ. Did you see that in verse four of Romans chapter six that we just read that we were baptized into him and buried with him? But also, do you remember at the outset of his ministry, Jesus actually baptized himself? Or Jesus was baptized himself. Baptism isn't just a visible reminder that we're on the team or we're in the church, but so much more. What baptism shows the world and us and reminds us in is that we are in Christ. We are one with Christ. I promise four, we have been washed of our sins. It shows us that we have been washed of our sins. Acts 22 verse 16 says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. All the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament come to their visible climax in the waters of baptism. Be reminded of what God did in your heart and visualize it for yourself and being dunked into the water where you are washed clean. It's a powerful image that your sins have been washed from you. Guilty robes you wear no more. They were replaced by the robes of Christ altogether. And all of them, we don't just dip our fingers into the water. You've got to hold your nose or else you'll choke on water because all of you is going under. All of your sins have been forgiven at the cross of Christ. This, this is a sign that we are completely, completely forgiven. And it causes us to rejoice. Every time another person comes to the water, all of God's promises are brought to each of us yet again. Baptism becomes an effectual mean of salvation, not from any virtue in it or in the one who baptizes, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Holy Spirit in baptism. So that's baptism. Now, Lord's Supper. Why is the Lord's Supper given to us as an ordinance, a way that we can be presented Christ's redeeming work and also to cherish him? The Lord's Supper 
by definition, is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Christ Jesus, wherein by giving and receiving of bread and wine, according to his appointment, his death is shown, and the worthy receivers are by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. I don't know if you've ever had a handshake deal with someone. You know, nothing was really passed on in that handshake deal, but that symbolized that there was a bond given there. And what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are being reminded that an agreement, a covenant was given by God to his people. It gives us a couple of promises. Promise number one, or these as well. Promise number one, Jesus' body was killed for you. His blood was shed for you. And we often forget this, which is why we need a reminder through the Lord's Supper that the perfect Son of God gave his life for yours. We are sealed with a new covenant of God's favor towards us. Sealed with what? Not a handshake, not a stamp, but his own blood was shed for us, sealing us permanently with himself. Promise number two, Jesus' body was killed for you, his blood was shed for you. Promise number two, Jesus is yours. and You are his. Like you see with water baptism, only this time it's even more clear, so clear that it's actually shocking, and it's supposed to be. Could there be anything more unforgettable than the picture that Jesus is yours and you are his? This is my body, he says. Eat it. This is my blood. Shockingly. Drink it. We cannot be more of his, and he cannot be more of ours. Promise number three, there's another greater feast coming. Matthew 26, verse 29, at the conclusion of the first Lord's Supper instituted by Christ with his disciples, Jesus gives a little prophecy to us. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Revelation chapter 19 says that the lamb comes and we get a glimpse of that other meal. Where it says in verse 9 of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus ate with his disciples once. And you and I never got to eat that meal with Jesus, but we mimic that meal as he told us as often as we gather. And every time we mimic that meal, we are reminded that one day, at long last, we will find ourselves at his table where a feast will be prepared for you intentionally. Him who knew you and who promises to bring a completion of your sanctifying Christ-likeness will then give you all the goods of his kingdom. And he's there too, so you know it's no accident. Friend, what a sign of redemption that we have and what a building up of our faith that we can partake in. The ordinances are incredible, powerful visuals of all the different angles of the gospel. It has death. It has redemption. It has forgiveness. It has the remission of sins. It has someone who was filthy now being presented as clean by the one who organizes everything. And he's saying, this is the route to the mountain. And when we deny those things, we tell him that we have chosen a different way. And he's saying, this will give you nourishment. You see why we invite non-Christians to not partake with us, but to watch. And this wasn't always the case in the early church. In the early church, they would have 
like a church service, you would, and then they would have a separate room, and they would, they would have their church service, and then they would say, okay, everyone who's not one of us, actually go away, and we'll go into the kitchen and eat together. And now we've kind of turned that on its head, and we say, hey, everyone, listen to what we just talked about, and now watch us enjoy God's redeeming work. And it should plant in you, a non-Christian, a little sense of, I'm, out, I'm an outsider. And friend, you need to know, you are. You are outside of his redeeming work. You are outside of his grace. You are not partaking in his mercy. You are not partaking in his love. But hear the call of his invitation. It goes to you continually. He is saying, come to the table and eat and dine. Again and again and again, as the meal passes by, or even those who were in discipline. I was at a church long ago where I was uh, called by with some of the men to actually take the meal in front of people. And everyone who was disciplined by the church and excommunicated, they, were still, they still came to the church, and we still invited them to the church, but there was that moment where we went from this person and then withheld it, and then went to that person. And we would whisper, come and eat. You can do what all of us have done. Repent of your sins and call out to Christ. Friends, there, there is like every Hallmark or childhood movie has the little kid who stands outside the bakery and smells all of the good things. And that's exactly the call of the gospel for us to do. And don't you see God's redemption in the meal and in baptism? Don't you understand non-Christian, his invitation to not just understand the smell, but actually be united with him in giving yourself over to him. We invite them to watch, but not take. This is why we also invite the believer in Jesus to partake of his ordinance, once for baptism and regularly for the Lord's Supper. And this is a tremendous charge, I, I believe, to elders of particular churches in understanding this. The modern church is filled with the desire to attract people to buildings through programs. And God has given us programs. Our programs are his word his ordinances, and prayer. And so if he gives us programs by which the Spirit may bring salvation effectively and, self, and sanctification effectively, we must, as elders, be very precise and careful and good at administering these ordinances. Be very good at administering baptism. Be very good at administering, ad, administering the Lord's Supper. The message of the gospel is presented through the means of grace, but also know the message of the gospel is received here by us taking or by us being baptized, not only so that we can enjoy him once, but so that we can be enjoying him forever. Now, third, the last means of, or the last ordinary means of grace that he gives us, he gives us grace that is established through speaking. Uh, Brooke and I, several months ago, were in Charleston, South Carolina, where we got one of those historic tours of the old town Charleston. And it's amazing. I'm not an architectural guy. I just think buildings are cool and not cool for no other reasons. But one of the things that's so uh, unique about Charleston is they have these, these stamped, these uh, very noticeable stamped like caps on a rod outside of all the old buildings. And the reason for that is uh, long ago, in the eight, uh, 19th century, 1800s, there was a massive earthquake that shook Charleston. And all of these buildings were not built to withstand a small earthquake, much like has probably happened with some of us 
in our own buildings where there's a crack outside of your building. And you're like, well, yeah, this wasn't built to be in California. Why is it cracked here? In Charleston, all of these buildings shook and some of them tumbled. In order to restore these buildings, they put giant metal rods all the way through a building. You can imagine from that side to that side, through the balcony. By the way, some of you don't actually know that we have a balcony. I've asked many people in the new membership class, you can sit up in the balcony if you want. And they're like, what? And it's like, it's right there. Look at all those people. They're trying to hide from you, but look at all of them right now. You would imagine yourself going through like a 40 by 40 building with a giant rod that might be five inches thick and 40 or 50 feet long and then turning it bit by bit to where it holds the building together to where you can then add on or know that this building isn't going to topple over you. This happened after all these buildings were inevitably destroyed because they didn't have a good foundation. And I think that's how many of us apply prayer in our lives. Things tumble. And then we're like, oh God, please help. God has given us prayer as a means to regularly enjoy his redeeming work. God gave you prayer in order to call out to God initially. And God gives you prayer continually in order to be built up in faith. How many of those people in Charleston wish that they had put a thick slab of foundation under that building or made massive walls that could withhold uh, an earthquake so that they didn't have to invent and just ramrod a bunch of bolts through a building? We continually have prayer in our lives morning, noon, and night because you and I continually go through the thicket, don't we? We are in such a fallen world. So many of you are in such a fallen world. Your world is your lived nightmare. And God gives you a meme by which you can be regularly reminded that you have been given Christ to save you from your sins and to enjoy God's glory forever. You do not have any situation of a commercial break. You have no situation of feeling like the shadow has gone over you, or maybe he has turned his face away from you, but he has presented himself clearly through prayer. So is your prayer a recovery earthquake rod for yesterday's circumstances, or is it building a strong frame for tomorrow's situations? Prayer is a means of grace, according to the scripture. God has promised redemption to all who call on him in truth. Acts chapter 2 verse 21 says this, and on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, meaning everyone who prays out to God, shall be saved. Prayer being commanded by God and shaped by the word is a means of grace, the mean by which we receive Christ and are sanctified and shaped into his likeness. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. God, save me. God, help me. God, teach me. God, guide me for things agreeable to his will. In the name of his glorious and holy son, Christ Jesus, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now, prayer teaches us four things, or prayer shows us four things. First, they teach us. Prayer teaches you, hopefully, about God. Prayer hopefully teaches you about God. This is why I think praying through Scripture is so important, or praying within the understanding of Scripture is so important. So what if you've been going to church for five years, or 30 years, or 100 years? Hearing prayers uttered by God every week, hopefully this instructs us how to pray on a regular basis. This is why we have 
five prayers in our church service, and they're designated different. There's a prayer of thanksgiving so that you can learn how to pray with a thankful heart, a prayer of adoration so you can adore God, a prayer of confession so that we can pray and confess our sins, a prayer of petition so that we don't have to feel bad and say, God, can you help my marriage? Can you help my boss? Can you help my friend? Can you help me? Prayers teach us. They also strengthen us. What happens? Secondly, they strengthen us. What happens when we cry out to God together to move us or individually to move us, to save us, to act? We see that he answers with a yes or a no. And doesn't that strengthen you? Brooke was not the first girl I prayed to be my wife. And I'm very glad he said no. Because there will be a day when I need to be continually strengthened by his no's. Because he gave me his yeses as well. Faith is increased in our hearts when we pray to God. I'm probably more likely to go home in my closet and pray with greater fervor when I understand that I am being built up like a strong man of God or a strong woman of God through prayer. Thirdly, prayer also humbles us. The very existence of prayer is a parable against pride. Friend, no one prays to you. You don't, you don't pray to anyone else, do you? Hopefully not. Who do you pray to? And why do you do it with such confidence? How sweet it is to be humbled at the idea that our sovereign God hears us in prayer. Every time a prayer is uttered on a Sunday morning or at home, it's a reminder that you and I are not in control. We ought not to act like we are. It's okay to not be in control. None of us are, but there is one who is. We're actually capable of accomplishing very little on our own. And we're able to accomplish nothing of eternal value on our own. But in prayer, we are humbled because we go to the one who does and who is and who will. Lastly, prayers remind us of who God is. They teach us, they strengthen us, they humble us, and they remind us. Go back in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. This is prayer reminding us of who God is. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And Moses said, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people then stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I want you to imagine two churches in this situation. The first one, like Israel and Sinai, where they were silent towards God. They saw themselves as far off, and they wanted to be very far away. They dare wouldn't address him with all the smoking and the flashing of lights. And then a second church, constantly addressing him. In words sung, in words, prayed, in words prayed, and in words preached. There's one who was silent and went far away, and then one constantly addressing him. You could almost, in reading the Bible... Knowing our own hearts, understand that verse 1, 
you can imagine their hearts would be, well, how dare we speak to God? How dare we address him? Yet an understanding of prayer as a means of Christ's redemption being brought to us and building us up, we need to be reminded that we are commanded to pray without ceasing. We're commanded to pray publicly. We're commanded to pray privately. We're commanded to pray when we gather. We are actually commanded to be a loud church in our prayer, a loud church in our prayer closets. And every time that noise sounds, there's a powerful reminder struck that our sinful selves are reconciled to God and that a holy God hears us. Friends, we are reminded of God's glory and his redemption when we pray because we are reminded that he has heard us, that he has come for us. And so we see that prayers shape us intensely. They disciple us. I remember one weekend we prayed a prayer of confession. And a middle-aged man in this church came up to me in this last spring. And he said, I didn't really understand at the beginning when we started inserting all these various prayers and titling them. I, like, we've been in churches where we pray a lot through the scriptures, but here we have titles on them. I didn't really understand why we did the prayer of confession here, but then it clicked one Sunday morning when we had an assortment of prayers and I had on my heart very heavy things that I needed to confess to God. And I remembered then that I was forgiven in my sins. And I couldn't wait to come back next week. On a weekly basis, we are being trained to adore God, to confess our sins to Him, to remember that He is the forgiver of sins, that we are to be reminded that it is God through our petitions that give us hope through His Word, and that we have the opportunity to thank God for His grace. We live in shaky, unstable times, like we see in an outpouring of an earthquake in Charleston. We are brought, though, God's redemption as a sign in our prayer and reminded of a sovereign grip through prayer. We give ourselves over to Him. And so we see how important it is. Now, if you're here to conclude, and you're not a Christian, that, that the ordinary means of grace, they're for the rest of us, to enjoy God through. So we, we observe the ordinances to enjoy God. We, we hear his word to enjoy God. We pray to him to enjoy God. But you need to know that those are put right in front of you too so that you may know God. I, I pray that you would respond in faith to the God that we see in his word. The one who came and died on a cross in order to completely forgive you of your sins. And he was raised from a grave so that you can have the confidence that whatever you're pursuing to save you from your sin, he actually gave you this in order that you may be built up and strengthened in your faith. You can come to that God who is in our scriptures. That the God that we see given to us in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, you can come to that God through the confession of your mouth and the belief in your hearts and the ones who we pray to. You may think we're the insane ones praying to someone that we cannot see. Friend, friend you could have that. All of us fear the silence of our own mouths, like echoing in a dark cave where no one knows. But in your prayer, you can call out to God right now, today, to save you and to give you new life. And it will change your life. And you will enjoy it just like the rest of us get to enjoy. Nicholas Batzig, a pastor in Charleston, no coincidence there, just looked him up, uh, and a writer says this about the ordinary means of grace. If we are to grow in grace, we must acknowledge that God appointed certain means for that growth. We should then approach these means with eager anticipation and childlike reliance on our God who adds his blessing to them. We must rest 
content in a right use of these means, knowing that God has promised to bless them as we use them with repentant and believing hearts. Friends, these means are known as ordinary means because we are far too likely to be trained by a culture to rely on extraordinary means to receive extraordinary blessing. But God's grace comes to us extraordinarily. No doubting that. But through these ordinary means, the words, the ordinances, and prayer, our frantic, tech-savvy, definition-less culture wants to pursue a mystical, unrealistic practice, but we can pursue him in spirit and in truth. And be reminded of the means by which changed billions of lives and eternally. Those who believed in Jesus as their savior and securer in the initial churches that Christ established through the apostles, they trusted God to add to their number and strengthen their own faith as he saw fit. How? It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul. Let's believe it. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are in awe of your glory and your grace. We pray that you would encourage us and guide us, pull us and bring us back to trusting you and to cherishing you through the means that you have given us. Lord, thank you for giving us means that we can be told of you and reminded of you when we pray that you would give us the courage to pursue these. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our redeemer and our blessing. Amen.